Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Today's guest is Mary King Dawson. She's an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur, having worked with many companies in helping them through their digital transformation. And she's got a vast amount of experience doing that, but she's going to share with us what does that actually mean. But as usual, we like to start off with the background, the background behind the person. And so I had a chance to catch up with Mary Keane before we started recording, and she shared with me a little bit about her, her background, how her family moved to the UK, and how that shaped her vision in the world, and probably shaped what she chose to study, which from what I understand, Mary was politics and philosophy. So firstly, thanks for joining us. Uh, and secondly, why did you study that? And, and what, what did you get out of it? And what was your first job? Um, I, stud- I decided to study philosophy because I actually landed up doing an A-level in philosophy. I was one of the very first people in the UK to do that. Um, and it introduced me to you know, the science of how we think. Um, and it was fascinating. And I'd always, and at the time, which was in the um, early 80s, I was studying, um, politics in this country was going through massive seismic change. We had the minor strike and a number of other, you know, historical moments, somewhat like what we're having now. Um, and uh, so the two, the combination of the two really appealed to me. So that's why I decided to go to university and do that. Um, I actually landed up leaving university with uh, a first, um, but also um, I was pregnant. And I had my first son uh, when I was 23, when I left uni, and I needed a job. And I, I'd always had this sort of, a, I suppose, slightly kind of dream-like thing that I would go and be a journalist and, and be a campaigner of some description. But I, I'm afraid that uh, in those days, being a single mother meant that you, you kind of had to go to work. So I um, got a job on Fleet Street. And my very first job was working selling advertising space on the Observer magazine. Uh, so the first helped me get in the door. The shtick helped me get the job. And I didn't tell anybody I had a kid. <laughs> and so uh, and I worked very, very hard and, and was very, very fortunate that, you know, I learned all about the science of how advertising worked in those days. But uh, that was at the moment when desktop publishing launched. And that basically reduced the barriers to entry for anyone who wanted to become a magazine or newspaper publisher. And I was fortunate enough to get headhunted quite soon after I joined The Observer. I don't think I'd been there for a year by uh, two entrepreneurs, a guy called Christopher Ward, who'd previously been the editor of the Express newspaper, and another chap um, called um, Mike Potter, who had been the publishing director of Campaign magazine. And they had started this very small publishing company off with huge ambitions. And I was their fourth employee. And that went on to be Redwood Publishing, which became one of the largest content uh, companies in the world. Uh, although today I think it's in a slightly different world. And there's a reason behind that. <laughs> wow, that was, I mean, that's succinctly put, but it sounds like a huge journey and also probably a journey where you evolved and your role evolved quite a bit in it. What, how would you describe how you, like, what was the last role within that organization that you had? What, like, if there was a title, what was it and yeah. what exactly did it involve? Well, I, the, I joined Redwood um, as a sales executive 
uh, which was basically selling space in the M&S magazine, which was the, one of the very first contracts they ever won. And I left Redwood uh, three years later as a group publishing director. Um, and in between, I'd become an ad manager, an associate publisher, a publisher, and then group publishing director. Um, and I actually got headhunted to go and become an MD. So my journey was extraordinarily quick. Um, and I think that was down to the fact that uh, I was very fortunate to work with great people. Redwood was a hugely entrepreneurial organisation. I would actually say, you know, even today I look back on it and I can, you know, the culture of that organisation was just amazing. Um, it was one of those places that people really, really wanted to work. Probably a bit like Google is now, you know. I mean, it, it was really considered to be like an innovative company and organisation. And it was a complete meritocracy. I'm not going to pretend that, you know, I didn't encounter sexism because I certainly did. But if you brought in the, the bacon, you, know, you brought home the numbers and you did the job, you know, you would be rewarded. And I think that was, you know, that knowledge made you... Um, really you know understand what the future you had a future there and that you could get on which was extremely exciting so it was it was a great place to work so if i had to embarrass you a little bit by asking you to share what are the attributes that made you desirable as an md what were the things that people are like you know what she needs to get hunted as an md because of filling the gap it's really it's actually really interesting i, I when you just said that our memory just flushed back I hadn't been at Redwood for very long um, when one day um, I got called into a meeting and Mike, uh, who was the co-founder, we were talking about something to do with a client. I think by this point we'd won American Express. And I was saying, you know, they're very, they really need to sort out something to do with their, you know, their CRM program or, or something like that. And he sat there and he said, you know something, you will be the managing director if I'm not careful. And I looked at him and I was like, what? And looking back on it, I suppose if I could sort of, you know, have been an observer in the room, I think the reason why people assumed that I would, you know, be in charge was a lot to do with the fact that I wanted to discuss the problems that we were having, you know, and find solutions for them rather than just be a kind of... Uh, sponge, if you like, in in the meeting and just nod my head sagely and agree with whatever the most senior person in the room was saying. I wasn't afraid to, you know, challenge them or, or not even challenge them. I don't mean that in an aggressive way. I mean, I wouldn't be afraid to ask the question that everybody was on was on everybody's mind, but they were nervous that if they said anything, they might, you know, br bring attention to themselves. I just never had that problem. So, what, what do you think that is? Is it, is it something that you think people can learn? Yeah, I do think it's something that you can learn. I think it is something that you can learn. I think I had to learn it because of my circumstances. You know, I mean, I I was very fortunate in that my parents, you know, I was my parents are immigrants, but they did incredibly well here, and I was able to go to very good schools, and then I got to university, and you know, clearly I was quite academic, but I obviously had a great sexual <laughs> appetite as well because I ended up having a baby, and. That didn't go down quite as well uh, with my family. So, I mean, it was a question of like, you know, if I didn't ask, I wasn't going to get. And um, that's been, you know, one of the things that I've basically, 
you know, advocated throughout my career, but also when I'm advising, whether it's startups or it's people who are, you know, the senior CEOs of companies um, that have years of experience, you know, the, there's often, you know, a need for you to kind of find, you know, dig down deep and, and make sure you ask ask for what it is you want or mm-hmm. what you think you need. So what did you want after your MD role? Well, I went on to become, uh, through a number of, of kind of happenstance, perhaps, maybe you make your own luck, I'm firmly of that belief, but I landed up becoming the MD of a small PLC, um, which was a very interesting experience. And that was when I first actually came, I was 33 at uh, this point, and that was when I first really realized that there was an opportunity to make my own money beyond that of being salaried um, because the uh, the actual PLC got in trouble and uh, was uh, de- was taken off aim and myself and a small team we made a deal with 3i um, who bought the entire business and then set about breaking it up can you share the name of it or no yes the, the company was called Aspen PLC okay and it was trying to be a kind of mini WPP, really. Um, they were going around acquiring businesses mainly on a paper basis, or share swap basis. It's an old trick, but it's a good one. And um, I and my colleagues decided that we would acquire part of that business, which we, you know, we, we really believed was uh, underutilized. And in the end, it was only two of us who took the risk. We mortgaged our houses and we bought Sparfax and the publishing business and the fledgling internet business and uh, rolled it all up together and spent the next 12 months uh, turning it into a very profitable business. And it was then acquired by WPP. So that was my first uh, transaction. And that was quite an interesting experience. Yeah, in, 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 that, in, that, in that role, I guess you were a form of entrepreneur mm-hmm. that then migrated into being within the, the construct of WPP. How long did you stay within WPP? Four years that time. Four years. So walk us through the lessons you learned during that period from when you you know, mortgaged your house to enable you to be an entrepreneur to mm-hmm. the point where then you were an employee in a large company and how you navigated that and the key lessons well, I think becoming, uh, so the MBO, because that's probably the best way of describing it, um, the key lesson I learned there was to have really trusted advisors. Because, so I had this really horrible experience, actually. I think it was probably, it was probably the most sexist experience I ever had, even though I'd been propositioned by blokes at work and one guy once stuck his cock on the table when I was trying to make a telephone call to an important client. You know, stuff like that used to happen, I'm afraid. I hope it's to, I hope it doesn't happen anymore, but it used to. And uh, But this particular story, I remember we went to have a meeting with my lawyers and our backers who were, who were helping us acquire the Sparfax. My brother at the time was working for a small boutique merchant bank, so he was in the room and came with us, although I didn't declare he was my brother. And on the other side of the table, we had, you know, their side, um, who were 3i and their advisors, and, and a very uh, big-headed lawyer, uh, city guy. And he walked in the room and looked at me and pointed his finger at me and said, who the fuck do you think you are to buy Sparfax? And clearly that was his, you know, his approach to the negotiation. And I had to put my hands on my brother, brother to say him to sit back down because, you know, I said, sit down, John. 
And the others in the room were really shocked. And I looked at this guy and I said, you've just fucking lost. And that wasn't what he was expecting. So, you know, the, I think the thing that I learned there and then was stick to your guns and don't let anybody intimidate you because that's part of the game. That is part of the game. And, and, and in fact, having gone through the, uh, that, that process and we did successfully buy it, in the end, he had to step away from the, the deal because they saw him as a liability and he most certainly was because, you know, I had all the cards. He didn't. And I think having that sense of self-belief and confidence is really important and don't let anybody shout you down or make you feel, belittle you in any shape or, or way because believe you me, they're the ones that have lost and they're, they're, the, they're the small people. But then when I went to work for WPP, which was a fascinating experience, and I have to say this uh, quite openly, um, Martin was always a complete and utter gentleman to me and I never ever had a problem with him but I'm pretty sure that's also because he doesn't take people sucking up to him too well he likes people to be pretty straightforward with him when I got to WPP I think you know the first thing that struck me was just how deeply political most of the companies actually were and that there was this kind of constant sort of competition between, between us all and of course, once you realise that actually nobody was actually going to help you except yourself, no matter what the uh, PR story was when you were being acquired, get over that, then get on with it. You know, it was an amazing opportunity. And, you know, we were incredibly successful. I mean, we went from, I think we were billing about 200 million globally when we were acquired by them. And when I left four years later, we were a $500 million business. So, you know, we doubled uh, in that, over doubled in that period of time. Um, and then most of that was down to the fact that we just had incredible grit and determination. And we also, you know, really, really worked hard. But um, the politics did eventually infect us too. And, uh, you know, and then when the time came for my own out, you know, I came to the end of my own out, it was time for me to go. Mm. So where did you go next? I went, uh, actually had two years off. <laughs> I, uh, I had another baby, this time with a bloke. <laughs> and, uh, and we landed up going to China, which was a very unexpected route, especially when you have a little kid with you. But uh, it was at the time when the run-up to the Olympics in Beijing. And I'd always been mad about technology and obviously working at Sparfats, which... Uh, is the world's largest provider of in-flight entertainment and media solutions. That was my elevator pitch. Um, I just rolled off. <laughs> you just said that yesterday. Yeah, I probably did, actually. <laughs> and the airline industry is incredibly technical. And, and, and you know, we had 9-11 during the period uh, that we were running Sparfax. So, that you know, there was an enormous amount of change that took place because of the increased security and all of the other aspects of it. But I had always been very, very interested in understanding about tech. And I saw that internet-enabled content delivery systems were definitely going to be a major part of the future. And I got into, I got offered a, an opportunity to um, be the, you know, the global CMO of a, of a tech business that was taking its technology to China. And 
internet in basically take building out an internet enabled digital signage throughout you know uh, Beijing and and elsewhere so that was an incredible experience and was my first real what i would describe as entrepreneurial you know bootstrapped moment and that's uh, not like an easy market either no it was but it was at the time I and mean, you're going to remember this is 2006 at that time was when we really started to see uh you know th- th- that digital was going to become much more of a dominant force and there was a lot of money in China. Um, there was a lot of ambition in China. And, you know, as a foreigner and working with a, with a gang of foreigners, we were, the team were from all over the world. It was a truly global effort. Um, I think that, you know, the Wild West it may have been, but it was also a place where you could learn a huge amount. And, I, and in terms of business, I mean, you know, I was pitching literally every single day to investors, everyone from, you know, Goldman Sachs to high net, net worth individuals through to, you know, guys who ran funds but had their own money and traveling all over the world to do that. Um, so it was a really interesting experience, one that I'm very grateful that we had. The business actually was acquired um, uh, in the run up to the Olympics, and uh, that meant that you know I came home. And although I'd been coming backwards and forwards to London during that period, um, the kind of uh, digital advertising revolution that had been occurring during that time had sort of passed me by because I'd been out of the out of the mix for two years. And coming back to the UK, um, I'm finding that people who've been working for me at Sparfax had gone and started their own companies off, you know, and were doing something in the internet, I thought was really exciting. And that's how come I landed up going to run stake. Mm. I feel like there's a theme here. You move and you succeed and then you move on to the next thing. And this is like a really fascinating story. And I'm waiting to hear like what you did at stake now. Well, stake was really interesting. Um, Julian Walker, who was one of the co-founders, had been my best ever sales guy at Sparfax. He was one of these people who could grab your heart metaphorically. Um, and it was a bit like, you know, he'd then sort of stroke it, in, you know, in his hand in front of you. Um, and I mean, he was just gold in terms of revenue generation. And he partnered up with Ollie Bishop, um, who'd been at eSpotting, which then obviously turned into Miva. And the two of them, along with Duncan Parry, had, you know, built this engine, for want of a better description, called Stake, um, that you know, went from being three men in a, you know, someone's back bedroom to literally $48 million pounds worth of billings in 18 months. Wow. They were in the right place at the right time with the right story. Um, however, you know, uh, <laughs> the world, as we know, in digital uh, changes overnight and the business originally had been built up uh, very much on the Google Kicker, which Google had brought to the UK to, you know, basically kickstart paid full search. And then, you know, they announced, you know, what great guys, uh, lovely that you've all, you know, built these fantastic search uh, businesses, uh, but we're going to withdraw the kicker now. And of course, that meant the terms of business really changed overnight. And the business itself kind of went from being, you know, gung-ho, uh, you know, young guns, go for it, whatever, to actually having to get really serious and quickly. So, and there were a few casualties during that period. Um, Stake, I'm very happy to say, wasn't one of them. In fact, Stake uh, went on to uh, 
be successfully acquired by Dentsu through 360i and um, you know the guys did really really well out of that and they deserve to but my job was really to come in and if you like professionalize it but in the process of course I got to learn all about search and that was an amazing experience for me because it was just at the time when automation started and I could see very clearly that the whole um, the whole piece was going to radically change from being some kind of craft where you sent people down the keyword mine looking for go- you know golden nuggets of adwords or whatever to actually becoming a technology business. Um, and that was, you know, I wanted to be part of that. So once I had the bug, you know, that, that led me on to really, you know, being much more actively involved with startups as well. And of course, you know, early days of Kenshu, Marin, um, Efficient Frontier, and, and of course, out of that grew programmatic and the whole performance piece around attribution modeling and ad tech as, and martech as we know it and where it's going now obviously is this new world of machine learning and, and ai so it's another another you know another revolution is awaiting us mm. and uh, it's there's no doubt in my mind that you know being agile and fleet of foot and being aware of what is going on and never, you know, don't ever think you know it all because believe you me, you just have no idea what, what's just around the corner. And mm. sometimes it's the most obvious thing in the world staring you in the face, but, you know, someone someone else will see it first. Mm. You know? So maybe this is a good point for you to help us understand what digital transformation means mm-hmm. because you said something earlier that kind of caught my ear, which was, you went in and you professionalized it. And I'm trying to discern what that means in your head as opposed to digitally transforming a company. Are the two similar or they're different? Is one more of an operational thing and one's more of a sort of philosophy thing? Maybe walk us through the, how that, that, the two things divide in your head. Or if they're the same. Um, I think that I think that they are the same. You know, with regard to the specific example of stake. I mean, you know, you had 120 people basically working, you know, individually on Excel spreadsheets and pivot tables and so on and so forth. And, you know, basically handcrafting the, you know, the, the analytics or the attribution modeling and, and, and basically trying to work it all out, you know, as a team or whatever. The professionalization of that really was in adopting, you know, tools for efficiency and ways of working that allowed us to be much more, um, you know, not only efficient, but just being a lot more creative, if you like, upping our game, yeah? And, and, and I think what I have found in digital transformation with regard to clients, and in the last two years, I've spent a lot of time working with clients who are on that road. Um, because, I mean, if you think about it, it used to be that for, an, let's just use an FMCG client for, for an argument's sake, um, it used to be that retail was everything to them. You know, when the gondola end was the world for them. That's how they, you know, in category promotions and, you know, grabbing your, you know, that poster site just outside the supermarket, for example. Their world has completely been turned upside down. Okay. And where it used to be that the guys who were responsible for digital sort of sat somewhere at the back of the room. Maybe there was like, you know, they were ex-IT people. Now... You know, you're ha- they're having to go out and recruit armies of, of people and individuals who understand how e-commerce works, 
understands how you join up these you know traditional silos within their organizations and how you use techno- technology to actually enable better communications and inc- and increase the margin so it's a fascinating set of problems that need to be you know solutions need to be found for and so for me digital transformation is really about that it's actually about you know bringing in the learnings and you know finding the solutions and working with the people to actually unlock the potential that digital undoubtedly can provide for you know companies and that, I think specifically we just mentioned their FMCG but that whole uh, world is going through an absolute revolution at the moment. Do you think that the concepts that you're calling digital transformation are reserved only for companies that have to be transformed digitally because they're coming from an analog world? Or is it a philosophy that you think can apply to a brand new company and it's more of a mindset? I think it's absolutely a mindset. I absolutely so, think it's a so mindset. So walk me through that mindset. Well, I think that the the mindset for all of us needs to be much more you know i know it's hackneyed and we talk about it a lot but it absolutely has to be about collaboration one of the biggest problems I, that i think a lot of startups and entrepreneurs have um and and can be the cause of failure for a lot of them is that they think they can do everything themselves or that they are the best person to do everything and two things come out of that first of all you know there is a myopia in that which is very very dangerous um and secondly you're probably going to make yourself very sick um because you can't work 15 20 hour days every single day of the week you've got to have good partners around you and good and and people that you know have an alternative perspective because through that you that discourse and that discussion you will find great solutions it's one of the reasons why digital transformation is so hard for big companies because they have encouraged groupthink and rewarded you know the wrong behaviors okay for years and years and years because it's just always been about he or she who you know climbs the greasy pole highest will be the one that you know this very hierarchical structures digital transformation really only works when you have a lot more of a of a of a cooperative approach to it and sure someone has to be in charge but it has to be uh you know almost that everyone's bought into that so, so what do you call a digital transformation why do you call it cultural transformation because i think that uh well, for two reasons one is that digital is the dri- is the driver for it and ultimately when you're looking at anything to do with transformation or or change um and we live in a capitalist society you know we work with investors and and we work with consumers it's all about you know what's the commercial reason for doing it because i think that's part of the reason why cultural change programs often fall by the wayside they're not aligned closely to um commercial outcomes and i mean at the end of the day you're much more likely to get f- further and, and achieve transformation when you can sit down with a ceo or with a you know a c suite and say i'm going to improve margins by 5% you know i'll show you how we can do it now you've got me at hello right whereas if you go in and start talking purely about cultural transformation that just sounds like cost mm. back to the marketing <laughs> that that is the entry point but for you it sounds like there is an element it's not like the iceberg right the tip of the iceberg is the digital bit absolutely but the bottom of it really is getting all these people aligned around 
moving away from the greasy pole mentality and moving them toward a collaborative support structure? I, I mean, I, you know, I really feel that the culture of many corporations in the world, and I think we've seen it recently with, you know, the example of what's been happening with Uber, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, you don't have to be around for 100 years to, to actually have a very bad culture. Cultural change is, you know, about your values. Um, but yeah, just, but, you know, I'm using the Trojan horse of digital transformation to unlock that game. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, businesses are hugely sophisticated and complex, you know, organisms. And as much as, you know, Harari would have us believe that we're all going to be replaced by algorithms in the not too distant future, and he may well be right, but it, the reality is that right now there's an enormous job of work to be done to actually, you know, um, democratize our business culture. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I fight very hard against this diversity as PR approach to things, because it's well and good for large corporations to say they're promoting women or they're promoting diversity. Or, but then when you actually look around the room, you're just seeing a bunch of white middle class people. Hmm. You know, where are the directors? Where are the empowered? And um, I think that, you know, that will happen. I mean, we need to reflect uh, our consumer, uh, you know, the population at large, the, our customers. Hmm. And the only way we're going to do that is if we're actually you know disrupting from within. Hmm. And that disruption, if you can prove it has a commercial benefit to your clients or to your investors or, or whoever, then you're much more likely to have success. Mm. And I think that's the key. So you have such a rich history that literally if I go through your LinkedIn profile, it's like case study after case study of success. And the core of a lot of that is this this idea of digital transformation, cultural transformation. Mm. And I want to see if we can spend some more time on that because I think it's something that's really kind of the core of the this time you spend now with MKD uh, in, in, in helping others achieve that. And maybe you can selectively pick from all the amazing stories that you've had leading up to where you are today mm-hmm. to answer the next couple of questions. I guess the first one is, pretend you're a Series C or a Series A founder. You cannot afford Mary to come over and help shake things up. It's like the early days of a toxic culture forming. What are the top three things that you do when you come in Knowing that the digital transformation is a, is a Trojan horse, but literally you're looking for where things are going wrong. What are the top three things you do within the first 100 days of being hired to, in effect, start that process? Uh, you need to talk to the people. That's what you need to do. That's the very first thing you have to do. And so whenever I have, uh, you know, in all of the various roles that I've had, whether it's been as a consultant or whether I've been leading a business or I've been brought in to, you know, basically give it a review and audit it, the first thing you have to do is talk to the people, and the people who are closest to the customer invariably know what the problems actually are. Um, And so listen to what your salespeople are telling you. If it's, uh, you know, listen to, you know, what your the, the guys that are trialing your tech are telling you. Listen, you know, and take notes. Don't ignore and I think that one of the biggest challenges for, especially um, when you're starting out, 
you know, and there's the scenario you just painted for me there, you know, you're, you're running on empty half the time. It's really important to find, seek out and find advisors. And by the way, not everybody wants to be paid a king's ransom. They'll be happy to do it on points, but do. I recently, I mentored somebody who uh, had a really bad experience with her first, uh, following her first round, she took some money um, and went out and employed some people and immediately they, you know, they were the wrong types of people because they were looking for jobs, right? They weren't looking for experience. And the fact of the matter is that there's a real big risk when you join a startup. It's always going to have a risk to it and you can't de-risk it. You know, you've got to, you've got to bring on people who want to take risks too, but they may not be the people that you land up building the company with down the line. And everyone needs to understand that. So, you know, the second thing I would say is make sure that you have an open, uh, an open culture, a culture where people can actually call it out if they see or feel something's not right, but equally celebrate when something is right. Like the very first time you make a sale, make sure you send a bottle of champagne or whatever it is to the person who bought from you. Mm. Yeah. Celebrate success. Because unless you do that, then nobody recognizes that it's actually very worthy. Hmm. Okay. So talking to people, celebrating success. Let's say that that takes, I don't know, 50 days. We got another 50 days. What comes after that? How do you start affecting change? Because part of that sounds like it's discovery. Hmm. And then now you've had that discovery, you kind of now need to action it. But some of that actions might actually be contrary to your natural instincts. Yeah. And it's different when you come in and, and you've taken leadership because then it, it does provide a clear mark the difference in leadership style. But when you can, it, it's you and you have to transform yourself. How do you coach people into doing that? Well, one of the things that I think is really important is to understand yourself and to actually take the feedback about where your strengths lie. Um, you can you can do this online. You don't even need me. <laughs> you know you don't need somebody to come and analyze you for it. Um, I, I'm trying to remember. It's called Clifton's um, strengths. Yeah, Clifton's strengths, and it's a guard thing, and you can do it online, and it will basically give you a really really detailed analysis of where your strengths and your weaknesses lie. And I think it's really it's really important as a leader, as a, the founder of a business, to really have that observation. And you need to sit down with somebody, you know, a colleague or a friend, and just go through it, you know, and have that kind of self awareness. Because fundamentally, if you if you can develop self awareness, which goes back to that point about can we be taught? Okay. Um, we can be taught because we can teach ourselves, but we need to interact with others and have those conversations. When you're trying to change behaviours in an organisation or you're trying to formulate the, the right behaviours, you need to identify what the values are for your business. I was recently uh, ch chatting to a CEO of a very successful uh, business. It's only 10 years old, but it's just, you know, it's, it's now a unicorn. And I asked him, you know, why did you why did you go the route you did? I'm not going to give too much detail about it because it was a confidential conversation, but he won't mind me saying this bit. Um, and he said, I sat down, you know, for, for hours 
looking at mission statements, trying to draft it up, you know, come up with some pithy one-liner that everyone could buy into in the organisation. And then he said, I realised actually it had nothing to do with what I really wanted to do. And what I really wanted to do was build a digital utopia. And everything falls out of that. And I thought to myself, that's great, because that's something you believe. And it's about beliefs. And if we can't actually articulate our beliefs, then, you know, what is it? It's just a load of bullshit. And nobody wants to, you know, you're, you're going to get found out, basically. You know, there's a word called, you know, authenticity that is bandied around constantly. Um, and as somebody who hasn't got, who's completely comfortable in her own skin and, you know, I know that I wasn't always like this, you know, I grew into it, but that's because I made a decision to think about what I was doing and the impact that my actions have on others. And I think, if you know, that actually is a very good guide to, you know, what's happening in your organisation. So in those last 50 days, I'd probably work with my people to define what we see as that big, you know, hairy idea that we will, we want, and then draft up a manifesto which is about the behaviours we want our people to have, you know, and our clients. Sometimes, you know, if you've got customers, some customers aren't that great for you because they want you to do bad things or behave in a bad way. And it, and you know what? You've got to think about that because that can infect your organisation very, very rapidly. Hmm. And I, I'm a great advocate for saying to people, be very, very careful that you don't land up, you know, choosing a very bad a very bad customer because that could create a very bad business mm. well you know from where we left off in your story you we work not only in additional startups but also some very name brand businesses that people will recognize like Ogilvy and you know you worked uh, as a global ambassador for Bima and you just mentioned how self-reflection and analyzing yourself, um, with a with a view of gaining experience, but also sort of not necessarily um, thinking that you can do this all alone. You need to support of other people, especially in, in covering your weaknesses and helping you as an organization to achieve what you want to achieve. What did you learn during those experiences? Because the, the temptation, I mean, it's you're very confident and clearly very experienced, but what was the things that you were working on during these transitions? What are the things that, you know, it's too personal to answer, but like, if, is there anything that you're like, you know, crack, I haven't really just... I haven't gotten that bit or that's the one thing I'm working on and that's the thing I'm stuck on and okay here's another opportunity to work on it I'm not sure I'd want to change it <laughs> okay but I know that I always want to believe the best in people mm -hmm. and unfortunately you know you're not always right and I've met a few people along the way who you know present one way but actually are completely different below the surface and you know that's part of the journey too right you you know you get let down by people or you discover that they're lying to you or whatever and that can be very disappointing and very hurtful if you you know if you I'm a highly emotionally intelligent person and I feel things an awful lot and I think that's one of the reasons why I've been successful. I'd say, in fact, it's probably the reason that I've been so successful because people believe in me. And that's a great power to have. And it's not something that you should abuse. But occasionally, you know, I've certainly been in circumstances where, you know, people have tried to use my power, if that makes sense, to their own ends. 
and that's just you know that's part of being in you know in society in business I think the other thing is I mean I've you know I've been very very blessed in the last a couple of years because I have worked on some incredible clients and uh, you know Nestle Nescafe IBM in Marsat uh, British Airways and American Express. I mean, you know, clients I've worked with before, in fact, two of them, Amex and, and BA, have previously been my clients. And it's been really fascinating because of, you know, I've been around for quite a long time. And when we go back to your point regarding the digital transformation piece, um, you know, these companies were purely analog when I started off working with them all those years ago. And, you know, to now be in the position that I am, you know, where I'm actually helping them, you know, navigate this extraordinarily complicated new world order that we're in. Um, you know, and they're not the same people, by the way, but they're the same organisations. And I feel that that's given me an enormous advantage having that maturity and that experience, but also having the ability to bring the very best of the digital story to life. Um, and the technology to these to these people who really are blind, you know. And what's that great uh, great quote in the land of the in the land of the blind? The one man is king. You've got to be careful that you're not the only queen in the room because you have to have some good advisors around you too. Wow, I mean it's 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 amazing to hear um, what you're sharing, and it's almost kind of tempting to say, "Hey, look, help." all the companies that I know uh, with some of their problems. Um, well, you know, I, I feel like there's so much more I want to share with you, but I know that your time is very valuable and you need to, to leave soon. Um, so I wanted to jump into some, some of the questions I usually like to ask people when we're wrapping things up, just because it, it gives maybe a different sort of side of you. Um, what is one superpower that you wish you could have? I'm a Star Trek girl. I'd like to uh, to just be able to uh, press a button and materialise myself on a Caribbean beach <laughs> or uh, into the office in New York or wherever it is. So, um, yeah, I'd like to be able to, to, to basically have that superpower rather than have to... Because let me tell you, people, I remember before 9-11 and it used to be travel was something glamorous. Yeah. It sure isn't any longer, that's for sure. It definitely is not, but... This will date when we recorded this, but you know it's only two days ago that we had a beach here. Yeah, it was I know. Boiling hot. Amazing. Um, all right, if you could undo one moment in your life, mm. what would it be? I poured a, a glass of wine over someone's head once at a party, at an event, a media event, because um, I believed a story that had been said about me that they were apparently. P- 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 uh, propagating around the, the world. And I, I've always regretted that. Even if they did do it, even if that was true, I wish I hadn't, you know, they hadn't riled me that much. It was the one and only time I've ever done anything like that. But, uh, yeah, I wish I hadn't done that. All right. If you were to look forward in the future and in that point in the future look back to today and look at it and think, oh, my God, I cannot believe that we were doing that. Think about how today we look back at slavery and think, mm-hmm. wow, that's just unbelievable that, that was going on and acceptable. What would we look back, let's say, 30 years in the future to today and be like, oh my goodness, not only is the internet really slow, but what else? What, what, what would you say? Wow, I mean, there's just so much shit. I mean, it's like, where do you start? Um, I mean, I think we will look back uh, at this time as being one of extreme, you know, 
doubt. I mean, uh, you know, it's almost as though, you know, that we've lost faith in our in our politicians, and I think we've lost faith in our, you know, in our this, you know, we've lost a lot of faith in what the decisions that politicians are making for us. So I, I mean, I think that will be a shock when we look back at it and say, how the hell did we get to that point? However, I'm an optimist, and I believe that you know it's also motivating people to really get engaged again, which I can only think is a, a really, really positive thing. So, although I'm I'm not very happy about the sort of current political leadership landscape that we're looking at in a number of different parts of the world. I also believe that you know we we can change for the better. Excellent. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, Mary. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.